book of 1 Corinthians, and we're going to continue that tonight. Uh, if you want to go ahead and start looking it up, it's, uh, we're in chapter 9, where we're going to read the first 18 verses that's found starting at page 1136 of your pew Bibles. But let, while you're looking that up, let me kind of set the context uh, for those that may not have been with us for a bit or visiting this evening. Uh, broadly speaking, we are in the part of the book where Paul is kind of addressing specific concerns that have been brought to his attention by the Corinthian church. He already addressed some issues about marriage, and last week in chapter 8, we saw him introduce the topic of, uh, or address the question that was, can we eat food that has been offered to idols? And in answering that question, we covered a couple of things, mentioning that uh, dietary questions were big at that time. They had a lot of questions about what can you eat, who can you eat with, how much is eating food a part of our worship to God or worship to idols. Um, and that would be a big deal, as we mentioned last week, if you were to step away and say, no, you can't eat food offered to idols. That would mean basically you would remove yourself from almost every social function, weddings, uh, community events, those types of things, because that was almost universally done. You often wouldn't be able to buy food or meats, especially in the market, because those had been sacrificed to idols. And so it would be a big sacrifice. It seems like those who were in favor of doing it were the ones who were asking the questions, and their argument in favor of eating food sacrificed to idols was the fact that they had the knowledge that idols are meaningless, therefore that practice is meaningless or non-existent, and therefore we should be fine. We have the knowledge that we can eat this food. That was up against those that it was seemed obvious struggled with the idea, well, this seems to be participating in idolatry. If the food was offered and we eat it, that means we're engaging in idolatrous practices. And in that divide, Paul offers an answer, which is two-sided. On the one hand, he says, yes, you are free to offer food sacrifice to idols. We do know, and it is correct, idols don't exist. And so you are free. But if the exercise of your freedom is going to cause another weaker brother to stumble in their faith, then you should not eat. And we highlighted some modern examples, but in the end he highlighted the principles love should be the emphasis over our knowledge. And Paul's going to continue to develop that main theme as we go forward. Let's see where he heads next. Again, we are in chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians. We're going to read the first 18 verses. He writes, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? 
Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on a human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for the oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do we do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endeavor anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have not, I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me, Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make the full use of my right in the gospel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, first and foremost, if you are paying attention, you will recognize immediately, like, wait a minute, you just laid this whole groundwork that suggested that Paul was talking about whether or not we can eat food sacrificed to an idol, and yet not once in this text did he say anything about food sacrificed to idols. So is he completely changing topics? We'll get to that question near the end of my message, but what I find interesting and want to highlight from the very beginning is the fact that though they asked him what seems like a pretty straightforward question, can we eat this food, Paul doesn't want to just give them a simple answer to what is a fairly complex question. He wants them to think through, well, how do we consider these types of issues? And not only what conclusion should we come to, but how do we get there and what principles are at play? And that is what he's developing here. And, and as he develops that, thinking about the principles that he had laid out in chapter 8 and now is working in chapter 9, he decides to use himself as an example. 
But let's go ahead and and work through the text and what he's talking about. First of all, in verses 1 through 3, he asks a couple of rhetorical questions that center around the theme of, of his apostleship, of whether or not he is an apostle. And behind that, it seems like he's not only continuing his argument about food sacrifice to idols, but it seems to suggest that there were those, and we'll continue this theme later on, in in the church of Corinth that thought, you know, maybe Paul's not an apostle. You know, does he really have that much authority or that right? And they were questioning him. And in light of that, Paul kind of pulls out his credentials. So what are Paul's credentials as an apostle? Okay, first and foremost, he says he's seen the Lord. Now, hold on a second. When did Paul see Jesus? Exactly. So that's uh, Paul's claim, is that though this was a resurrected Christ, uh, after his ascension, Paul encountered the living Jesus on the road to Damascus. So that's part of his credentials. But what is the most important part of his credentials that he can claim, I'm an apostle, from our text? Yeah, the church in Corinth themselves. He started this church, and in his work, we're seeing the gospel bear fruit. Lives are being changed. A church has been planted. And so he says, above all, you are the seal of my apostleship. You're the ones that say, uh, are the evidence that God indeed has called me to go forth and to plant churches and to spread the gospel message. Now, he defends that because one of the questions is going to be about the very thing that we're about to talk about, which is, he now starts to talk about rights, which in a lot of ways is a very contemporary issue. In American culture, we love our rights. We cling to our rights, you know, and how many times might you hear it said something along, well, this is America not communist Russia, I have the right to say what I think about this, and you can't stop me. We love our rights and to claim our rights. And so, in verses 4 through 8, and actually kind of through the end of the text, Paul continues these rhetorical questions centered around rights. And, And what is the right that the Apostle Paul is highlighting? Does he have the right to have a paycheck as an apostle? Yeah, exactly right. That he has the right to earn a living from his work. And and what do we learn about the practice of apostles back then from our text? Exactly. It seems like the vast majority of those that are traveling around, and this would include Christian pastors as well as secular uh, teachers and rhetoricians, famous speakers, they earned their living by the work that they did. Not only them, but most of them were able to bring along a, a wife, which we learned earlier Paul does not have. So he's half the burden that they are to start with because he only has one mouth to feed rather than two. And yet... Um, so that seems to be the common practice of the day. 
And in fact, it was. Uh, If you were a teacher, an apostle, you basically had four options in making a living. You you know, you weren't going to stay at home farming the land. You weren't going to sell a product. You could do one of four things. One, you could charge a fee for your talks, for your training, like a tuition. All right, you come tonight, uh, you know, everyone pay your $10 at the door, you get your seat, and now you can hear the sermon. That was one option. Option number two is you could have a benefactor in the place where you stayed. You'd find a a rich person, you'd stay at their home, and they'd take you into your house, they'd feed you, they'd provide everything that you needed, and that is how you could be taken care of while you did your teaching and your preaching. A third option is you could beg or collect an offering. Uh, It is the same kind of a thing where you say, okay, I've done this now, what do you want to give me? Because I need food. And and if they liked you, then maybe they pay more than the $10 ticket fee or maybe less, giving what they could. Or the fourth option would be to work another job. So then either your preaching or that other job would be a, a side gig, but you couldn't spend all your time doing that. You would divide your labor and you'd, you'd work for a living. Now, if you chose some of those first three options, like charging a fee, staying with wealthy people, or uh, collecting an offering, what extra temptations might come your way? if that was how you earned your living. Okay, there we go. First and foremost, Mike rightly says, give the crowd what they want to hear. Yeah, if someone's housing you, and they're giving you and providing for your needs, and then you say something, and they're like, you know, I kind of disagreed with what you said there. Maybe the next day, all of a sudden, you change your tune a little bit so that you stay on their good side so that they keep giving you things. Or again, same thing with if you're receiving an offering, right? The more you say what they want to hear, that might be your pathway to greater funds. So change your message. Make it pleasing to their ears. Keep, it, keep the crowd happy so that the offering plate comes back really full. What other temptations might there be? You could just imagine, say you're very successful, and you do get lots of crowds, and now you're making a whole bunch of money, and you can line your pockets, and you can be accused of misusing those funds, of manipulating people into giving you those funds, all kinds of different accusations. So the right has been claimed uh, that he could be supported by churches, um, both him and a companion. And Paul doesn't even ask about those questions, but he, he gets real specific and he lays it out. And let's follow his argument. It starts in verse 7. In verse 7, what does he appeal to uh, to suggest that he has this right? Yeah. What soldier is going to be a, a soldier just volunteering and taking care of himself. It doesn't happen. Not only soldiers, but who's the other group? Farmers. They work, and they work. They get to 
reap the benefits of their work. And so in essence, he's saying it's common practice with other jobs that you get supported for the work that you are doing. And so since it's common practice for others, why shouldn't it be the same for apostles? Okay, then he goes in verse 8 and he changes and he gives another little kind of argument. And, and what's this argument? Common practice and now the law, scriptural command. And he uses this example of you shall not muzzle an ox when it is treading out the grain. The idea being that as an ox is doing the work of helping you uh, get the grain and, and harvest your field, it gets to enjoy the benefits. The animal does. And Paul says, well, if God makes this commandment for an animal, again, shouldn't this apply? And he says it does apply. The law says the worker should is worthy of their pay. Verse 13, he jumps to another one. What's the, what's the support there? Yeah, the temple servants, all the way from the Jewish temples to modern pagan ones, they get to get some of the food from the work that they do. When an offering is made, they get a portion of it. And so again, through Jewish and uh, religious customs that even go beyond the Jewish faith, that's part of it. And then in verse 14, uh, his other little kind of support is the fact that the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should give their living by the gospel. This is Jesus himself in Luke 10, 7, uh, said that the uh, laborer is worthy of his pay, developing that whole theme. So Paul doesn't even ask the question, he lays it out, and the point is made, and it is abundantly clear. Paul has every right to claim a salary through his work as an apostle. But that's not the point. The point we learn in verses 12 and 15 is, is what? He has the right, but he's not taking advantage of it. What do we know outside of this context, of those four options I listed and how people could support themselves? How did Paul financially support himself? Yeah, he was a tent maker. He, he had skills as one who could construct, repair, and build the tents. And so that was how he would earn a living. He would preach, he would be an apostle, but he would earn. Now, an important note, we do know that Paul was financially supported by churches other than the ones he was working at. For example, in Philippians, he thanks them for their gifts, for their support, and so he didn't depend upon the churches where he was working at the time. He did get offerings, he did get support, but a lot of the work, it seemed, especially in the city of Corinth at this time, was the fact that he was working outside of his being apostle, making a, as a tent builder. In laying out this argument, he's abundantly clear. I have every right. I'm not taking advantage of this. And even though he's very goes to great pains to lay it out, he's saying, I'm not doing, using reverse psychology, saying like, you know, I have the right to do this. Uh, I, look at what happened in the Old Testament. Look at what Jesus said. He's saying, I, I'm not trying to even claim this right. Uh, he says, um, yeah, nor do I, I want to, uh, am I saying this to secure provisions? But so then, why does he belabor this point? What is the, the broader argument that he is making? 
And he says it in verse uh, 12, first of all, uh, the second part of it. We have made no use of this right, but we endeavor anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. And then he also says in verse 15, for I, am right, um, for I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. Now, real quickly in that boasting, we've seen First Corinthians or the Corinthian church have an issue with pride. This isn't a pride in Paul in himself. It's in the work that God's able to accomplish through him. Um, and so we've got to be a little careful with that. Furthermore, what Paul says is, I'm compelled to preach. Pay me nothing, pay me a salary, I need to do this. If it was my own desire, I was going around doing this, then yeah, I would probably ask for help. But I'm going to preach, no matter whether I make a lot of money or I make nothing. Uh, That's what I am doing this. But here is the question. Why would Paul, who has the right to earn this income, not do that? What's more important than his right? Okay. Yeah. So what are, on a practical level, we've already kind of hit some of these things, but what benefits would Paul see for, for preaching the gospel for free? Again, the opposite of what we had said before. There's no control. No one can manipulate his message through their giving. There's no changing of the gospel in order to keep the crowd happy. There's no accusation that he's uh, just doing this for the money. There's no accusation that he's misusing funds. Now, at the same time, with those benefits are the challenges. People are saying, like, well, look, if he was any good as an apostle, maybe he could make some money, but he's got to go out and and earn himself a living. And and so they're questioning his apostleship because of the fact that he wasn't taking money for it, it appears. But in that, you know, he says there's the right, but then there's the gospel. And those are the two things that he wants to keep in balance So how does this connect to eating meat offered to idols? How does this continue the argument that was made last week? Yeah. Daryl said, doesn't he think that, and what would, again, what would that reward be for not being in someone else's care? Okay, yeah, independence, preaching scripture as he saw it. But what's Paul's greatest reward? Preaching the gospel. Exactly. And Mike's hitting the crux of the issue. Uh, Last week, we divided... um, Well, if he was suggesting to those that wanted to eat meat, sacrifice to idols, that they should forsake that for the benefit of their weaker brother, Paul's not asking them to do something he himself is unwilling to do. 
And in many ways, that's his whole argument. That if you think you're making this great sacrifice by not eating meat in the setting where it's going to be a stumbling block to somebody else, let me tell you about the rights that I'm giving up. I'm not earning a living. I'm paying for this, and I've sacrificed myself, again, though, for that greater hope of the gospel. So in recognizing that, let's start moving to application. So is this text really just aimed at me and Pastor Brent saying, yep, look at Paul. Just like him, we shouldn't earn a salary. Uh, We should do this for the joy of our hearts and for the lives that are changed. Is that what the message of this text is? Thankfully, I'm hearing and seeing a lot of no's. (laughs) Now, I, I... I say thankfully and chucking, laughing a little bit, but there are a couple of important principles that do derive and I think do apply to people like us. I really appreciated the commentary that suggested uh, churches don't pay a salary. Instead, they should view it as providing for the needs of their pastor so that they are free to do the work of praying, of teaching, of training and support. And that's an important way to view it. But as pastors that do earn a salary, we always do have to remember where that comes from. And let's be honest, how many people in the modern world as pastors have destroyed the message of the gospel because of their greed, because of their abuse? Stumbled again this week, just happened to see again a a video of a big mega pastor who defended why he needed a private jet and how important it was for him to have that as a part of his ministry. And when the secular world and many Christians look at that, they look at that and they say, this is all just a scam. And again, in the principles that we lay out, what a shame that so many ministers have caused people to walk away from the faith, to doubt the faith, because of their lining their own pockets. And so it is a a principle in there. But for everyone, we get to that divide. When we ask those questions about what am I doing and what am I allowed to do and what I am not allowed to do, Paul is highlighting the fact that there are rights and knowledge. Those two words in many ways are synonymous in these two texts. Knowledge of the fact that there are no gods and rights that I have these things that I am free to do, even as, maybe especially as a Christian, free in Christ. And then there's love and the gospel, the going forth and making sure that people are able to hear as best and easy as possible about Jesus Christ and what he has done for them. And there are going to be times when we exercise our rights that we're free to do that will actually cause a hindrance to someone being able to hear the message of the gospel. And Paul's broader principle, as we highlighted last week in some of the examples that I laid out, is we should be willing to sacrifice our rights, our knowledge, if it means that the gospel's going to go forth and people's lives are going to be changed. Now, one thing I do want to be clear about is that we are talking about the gospel and love 
we are not talking about just not offending other people. That's another thing big in our culture, right? You can't do anything to offend anybody else. And that's not what he's talking about. You can offend people in what you do. That is okay at times if you're telling them the truth. But what the bigger issue is, how can they best hear who Christ is and what he has done for, the, for them? And that is the question I want to lay before all of us. You know, what sacrifices could we make where our lives could be a better light for this world. And maybe it's hard. Maybe it's something we treasure. Maybe it's going to be a big sacrifice. But if we think of what Christ has done for us, we should be compelled to go and share and have no roadblock in anybody understanding Jesus Christ. It's the gospel message above all else. And that's where Paul's going to go next as he continues this argument and this line of thinking. Uh, and we'll look forward to, to hearing that message next week. Now let's bow our heads and, and praise our God. Lord God and Heavenly Father, I want to first of all again thank you for those that have served us, for the teachers that have taught us well, for the pastors that have faithfully proclaimed your word, for Sunday school leaders and cadet and gem counselors and youth group counselors and all of the people as family members that have poured into our lives so that we know of who you are and what you have done for us in Christ. At the same time, I also want to ask for your forgiveness when we have gotten in the way of others hearing that truth, whether it be because of the language that we use and the looseness of our tongues, whether it be in the way that we have been hypocritical about what we ask or demand of others but are unwilling to give ourselves, whether it be just in the exercise of our rights that have caused others to question whether or not what we proclaim is truly true. Lord, open our eyes in wisdom so how we can best be that light in this dark world where we can serve others, sacrificing our wants, needs, and rights in order that your name might be glorified, elevated, and that lives might be changed in the hope and the proclamation of the gospel. Lord, as we go forth in this week to serve, may that be our greatest desire. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.